Dr. Eben Alexander is an American neurosurgeon. In 2008, he was driven into a coma by bacterial meningoencephalitis. After this near-death experience, he came back with insights from another realm, one that goes beyond our understanding of reality. He is the author of four books, Proof of Heaven, Seeking Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and Living in a Mindful Universe. Dr. Eben Alexander, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Well, Mia, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. In 2008, uh, you had an experience. Just tell, just tell us about that experience, uh, the before and the after. Well, the I think the important thing to point out is um, that it really, according to everything I believed about neuroscience uh, before my coma, should not have been possible that any of this would have happened. And that's why it was such a shocker. Um, and that's because of the documented damage to my neocortex, which should have gotten rid of any chance for such a dream or hallucination. And that's why I think my case is so important to the scientific community. But basically what happened to me uh, back in uh, November 2008 uh, was over just a few hours, I went uh, from severe headache and back pain into deep coma with grand mal seizures. I was hospitalized, uh, put on a ventilator on three powerful intravenous antibiotics. Uh, and while the doctors were documenting all this uh, damage to my neocortex and basically watching me go from a 10% chance of survival to a 2% chance with no chance of recovery as they deemed by the end of the week, that's when I was going through the most extraordinary, memorable, detailed, uh, rich and uh, vivacious experience of my entire life. Uh, that experience started in what I call the earthworm's eye view. Very important to point out that one of the unusual features of my NDE was that I was amnesic. I had no words or language, no memories of humanity or ever having been Evan Alexander. That was uh, kind of an empty slate that was important for many of the lessons I was to learn. It all started in a very primitive course, unresponsive realm that I labeled the earthworm's eye view uh, that seemed to go for eons. And yet, uh, I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody, ushered me up into the ultra real gateway valley. All of this, of course, I describe in detail in, in the book, Proof of Heaven. One of the toughest things to explain to people is that sense of ultra reality. More than half of NDEers come back saying that world is much more real than this world. We often think from this perspective, you know, that that world would be murky and dreamlike. This is the dreamlike world. That spiritual realm is much sharper and crisper and more kind of alive and detailed. And that's what I experienced in that gateway valley. And I remember seeing all of the material world and our uh, limited view of time collapsing. Then all of those spiritual realms of the gateway valley with a different ordering of events that I call deep time, all of that collapsing until I was out in what I call the core, infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the healing divine love of that creative source, that God source. And uh, I came back to this world calling that deity Om, because when I came back to this world after this extraordinary journey, God was a puny little human word with a lot of baggage that didn't really do justice to the extreme kind of majesty and also personal nature of that deeply loving God force. I went through multiple iterations through these realms, and then finally there came a time where, as I was promised, you are not here to stay, but we'll teach you many things, but you'll be going back. When I did come back to this world, my, my and that was on day seven of coma, 
uh, and it was at the behest of my uh, youngest son, Bond, who at age 10, they had protected from the worst news during most of that week. But now when he heard the doctor say it was time to take away the antibiotics and let me go, he knew it was serious, came running into the room, pulled open my eyelids and was begging me, daddy, you're gonna be okay, daddy, you're gonna be okay. I did not hear him with my ears, see him with my eyes, but that message got through. And that is why I came back to this world. But when I did, my brain was absolutely wrecked. I didn't even recognize my mother, sisters, sons at the bedside. All I knew was where I had just been. And my memories and language and all that came back over hours and days and ultimately completely over two months. That was the piece that was so shocking and proved to me very strongly that you know the brain is not the creator of consciousness nor the repository of memories. And that is something that Karen Newell and I describe in great detail in my third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, which uh, has been translated into French and is uh, an extraordinary kind of expansion of my journey uh, and shows the alignment of that journey with the scientific community and our evolving notions of consciousness and the nature of reality. It's so interesting because you are a neuroscientist and that experience, as you say, you know, it's, it's a little bit controversial, I, maybe not to artists or those who have a kind of more fluid sense of their consciousness and where their ideas come from. So what was the response to your colleagues and how did these uh, insights differ from what you'd been taught and what you'd believed prior to, you know, going into a coma and that experience? Well, it was a, a complete 180 degree shift from what I'd always been taught and believed. I'd spent 15 years as associate professor at Harvard Medical School teaching neurosurgery, thinking I understood something about brain, mind, and consciousness. But I came to realize that the materialist or physicalist view that the brain creates consciousness uh, is false. It is not true at all. You know, the, the notion that our existence as a soul is birth to death and nothing more is false. And that is what I think this world is waking up to. And there are scientists around the world who study these phenomena. And that I think is the most important thing. There, there was a little pushback uh, from the occasional uh, self-proclaimed scientist who from my point of view, hasn't even awoken to uh, the mystery of quantum physics. Most of the, the materialists who would uh, criticize me basically believe in a Newtonian deterministic model of the universe that was disproven almost a century ago with the advent of quantum physics. And it's taken the scientific community a long time to kind of get to what the deep message of quantum physics is. But I promise you, there are many more scientists, certainly that I know in the world today, uh, who realize this pathway forward towards the primacy of consciousness and a deeper understanding of our true uh, powers of free will is emerging from the science of consciousness. And those who used to believe the brain creates consciousness out of physical matter are going extinct because that is not what's truly happening. The models, as we explain in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, and as others are explaining, is one of idealism, where we come to recognize that the mental layer of the universe provides a tremendous amount of causal influence on the events of our lives. And this is something that we're just beginning to investigate. But the brain is not the creator of consciousness, it's a filter that allows in primordial unified consciousness, which is what the thing that we experience, for example, in near-death experiences, going back thousands of years across all cultures, experiencing of that one mind, of the life review where we realize that we experience that not from our own perspective, but from that of 
those around us who are affected by our actions and even thoughts during our lifetime. The Life Review is a beautiful show of how you know, our perceived limits of self and boundaries of self around our mind are false. We're really sharing the dream of the, of the one mind. And that's where this emerging science of consciousness is going. Go to galileocommission.org to learn a lot more. I'm one of the 100 plus scientific advisors for that group. Uh, talks a lot about this emerging model of the primacy of consciousness. And although it might be difficult for us to get our minds around it, uh, we witness it when we look at uh, the murmurations of birds, you know, all moving, this unified mind, all moving quicker than you could think, or dancers as well have this one mind. But I think we all have this. We all have this kind of complex choreography acting upon us and with us, though we might not realize it. Absolutely. And along those lines, I would highly recommend a book by a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Larry Dossi. The book is called One Mind, and he makes an eloquent scientific case for the reality that all of us, not just human beings, but with the uh, uh, other sentient beings in this world are sharing one consciousness. And it's a beautiful concept that the world badly needs at this time of friction and polarization. You get better eventually. Your memory returns a, a long process, a, a scary process, but I think also, as you describe it, quite beautiful. And yeah. then what changes in your life? What changes do you make? I know you you share this knowledge with people, but you know how did that rejuvenate you in your view of the world? Well, I think in many ways it was very liberating and refreshing. And it really proved to me how we're all truly in this together. You know, we are bound together through forces of love that can be very healing. Uh, it's a lesson that I think religions have tried to teach for thousands of years based on, you know, the deep truth that was discerned by various prophets uh, from journeys uh, that were just the same space uh, of near-death experiences. And yet the world at large has been uh, very slow on the uptake. And that's why I think it's important that the scientific study of consciousness is what is actually leading to this profound revelation in how we view ourselves and view our world. And that's what I went through, was exactly that process. When I came back to this world, of course, I had to wrestle and struggle back and forth for a few months, trying to make sense of it all. Originally, I was my own worst skeptic, and I thought it was way too real to be real. So I was trying to define it from my materialist uh, position, and yet none of that worked at all, especially as I was going back to the hospital, talking with my doctors, reviewing medical records, neurologic exams, CT and MRI scans, and realized that was not a brain of anyone who would be coming back to this world uh, and being able to discuss anything, much less the profound mystery of consciousness. Uh, there's a medical case report that came out on my medical records, that was uh, from Dr. Serbi Khanna and Bruce Grayson and Lauren Moore. That report came out in September 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. Anyone can access that case report. You can go to my website, evanalexander.com, look at the blog posting from September of 2018, and you will find a link directly to the case report. But it makes it clear to anyone with any knowledge of medical science, and certainly anyone who's dealt with severe bacterial meningoencephalitis, that this brain was not meant to come back. Uh, and that extraordinary healing is something that, in fact, the, the, the three physicians not involved in my care who wrote that case report 
used to explain the case when they were challenged by the peer reviewers who called it absurd. They said, no one this sick with meningoencephalitis has this full recovery. How do you explain it? And the doctors who wrote the case report said it was because of my NDE that I had such a profound healing. And I think that's an extraordinary admission in the scientific peer-reviewed medical literature of what's going on here. And this is why it's important to all of us because we start to learn much more about our powers of healing self and others. Yes, the, the positive thoughts, the uh, positive imaging, uh, we can do so much to heal ourselves. You know, there's so much about this Life is a miracle. I, I don't think uh, those of us who haven't had um, the near-death experience don't appreciate it as, uh, as deeply as, as you do. So you come back, you have a real sense of the meaning and purpose of your life. You've actually been told, you know, that that's uh, this kind of message. You know, what do you do to, to start communicating that? Um, how does, you know, what are some of the first things that you did? Well, a lot of it is sharing the story and, and letting other people know. And I was doing that for two and a half years before Proof of Heaven came out uh, by giving these talks, making DVDs, sending them out to people. Uh, and so it really is just to share the, the, the knowledge. It, I know Ken Ring, who was one of the uh, initial investigators into near-death experiences back in the 70s and 80s, uh, he has written extensively about how profound the effect of just knowing about near-death experiences can be on people at large, that it can be very helpful. Uh, it shows them something very different about the nature of reality that's not necessarily obvious from our kind of shared consensus reality in the material world. And yet these experiences are so widespread. I mean, an estimated 13 million Americans have had a near-death experience. Uh, and of course, many uh, hundreds of millions around the world. So it's really about explaining uh, these uh, common aspects of, of human reality. And I think ultimately, uh, meditation and centering prayer are beautiful ways to get to these deeper truths. Um, you don't have to have an NDE uh, to understand it. Uh, regular practice of going within mind, meditation, exploring across that veil uh, can be very important. And for that, uh, as we recommend in our book, uh, Living in a Mindful Universe, I use sacred acoustics. I would highly recommend anyone who's interested. It's a binaural beat brainwave entrainment uh, format that was developed by my uh, co-author and partner, uh, Karen Newell. Uh, but it's an extremely powerful technique. I use it at least uh, you know once an hour to a day. been doing that for more than a decade to return to my NDE as well as to uh, kind of take charge of my own health and healing others through kind of a deep meditative form of centering prayer that I approach to using sacred acoustics tones uh, because of their extraordinary impact on the brain stem and allowing this liberation of consciousness. If you read Living in a Mindful Universe, you'll get a much clearer picture of all that I'm talking about, or just go to ebonalexander.com. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of information there that will help people get up to speed on all this. But it's about unlocking our creativity, uh, getting into guidance and the true source of kind of wisdom and understanding of our role in the universe. And essentially, I believe that's what we're all challenged to do is uh, discover much more richly uh, the, the interaction we have with the causal forces in the universe and explore just how far we can take that power of our free will to manifest the reality of our dreams. I like that very much. Uh, the reality manifest the reality of our dreams, and it's not all in the material. That, as you say, is the container, perhaps, but right. and the body is the container. 
but there are so many dreams, so many possibilities. And Zoe had another question about how you got in touch with your creativity. Thank you so much um, for this beautiful life lesson. I want to ask, was writing a cathartic way for you to put into words a part of your experience and to create a sense of legacy? Absolutely. Writing was a beautiful thing. And certainly the biggest lesson to me, I had written a lot of academic papers uh, before, more than 150 uh, neurosurgical papers. So I was used to writing from that perspective. But this was a whole different ballgame. In many ways, I knew when I came back to this world that I had to write down my experience because it was so extraordinary. Even though my initial thinking based on my doctors telling me that the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks was just okay. So it was way too real to be real, some vast hallucination, but I had to explore it because it was so memorable and meaningful and real. I mean, I remember it today as if it happened yesterday morning just an extraordinary strength of memory and kind of consolidation. I mean, these events can take you a whole lifetime to unpack, but writing was a beautiful way to do it. And certainly uh, I think one thing, when I shifted from writing a scientific paper about consciousness and how my very case uh, completely overturned some of the fundamental assumptions neuroscience has about the brain and mind and consciousness, uh, I knew that, uh, um, you know, this whole process of, of writing it out, doing it for my own good in many ways was very healing uh, because it, by writing it out, you kind of put that story into perspective. Now, of course, so many people who have had this kind of experience will admit the words fail miserably. I mean, it's one of the problems with being a writer. You only have language to work with. And our language might be very good for describing a trip to Disney World, but it's not so good at describing realities where it's like drinking from consciousness from a fire hose, this extraordinary kind of rush of becoming. Uh, in those realms, often the, the lessons are not from perceiving something, but becoming huge swathes of the reality before you. Uh, and by becoming it, you come to know it in a very deep and rich sense. Uh, and so words and language, you, you have to get used to that as a writer that they may not fully convey uh, the deep truths. And that's one of the reasons why in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, <clears throat> Karen and I, we tell all these stories and make all these points and draw these kind of uh, theoretical frameworks to hang it all on. But ultimately, we're encouraging people to meditate, to go within because only by exploring within your own mental space can you start to really discern the extraordinary range uh, we have. I mean, really, that's all of creativity lives in this beautiful world that we can explore within mind, and it's connected with other minds. Uh, as Larry Dossey points out in his book, One Mind, as we point out in Living in a Mindful Universe, we are truly really sharing one mind, and the more you get used to exploring that across the veil of the physical brain and its filtering functions, but get out into that primordial mind. That's where we can really start getting creative and learning tremendous lessons about our relationship with the universe and how we can expand all that. But I had to start that journey through writing it down. I'm wondering how you just said before that the word God after this experience, it seemed like a puny word. So how do you define God, and, and how did your understanding become enriched? Well, it became very enriched through direct experience of, of uh, becoming one with that deity. Now, of course, no ego mind 
ever has any overlap whatsoever with uh, that extraordinary deity. But as we explore our own consciousness, uh, especially through meditation, centering prayer, or through the extraordinary lens of something like a near-death experience, uh, that's when we start to really see kind of the origin of that source awareness through this deep exploration of oneness uh, and of connection, you start to realize that that uh, home that may sound to some people uh, kind of distant and foreign in many ways is our true spiritual home. And as the more you, you come to uh, adopt and know that through meditation and through your own personal experience, the better. But it really completely shifted the way I see God. Um, uh, certainly, I, I came back realizing that it doesn't matter if you want to use the word God or Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit. Those are all misleading kind of linguistic tricks that point you away from the, the very deep and profound fact that we're all talking about the same central uh, being of source of uh, awareness of existence of the universe that God force, and yet it's right at the core of each and every one of our uh, awarenesses as a being. And this is why traversing that veil and kind of getting away from this false notion that we're a dissociated altar unto ourselves like an island in the sea, but uh, as Carl Jung noted, where those islands are all connected at the sea bottom. And that's what this exploring of greater mind, uh, primordial mind going through the veil, exploring that God force of ultimate creativity and of source awareness starts to show us the benefits of seeing the oneness of our existence. And then the way we treat other beings must be with kindness, respect, uh, with uh, mercy, uh, acceptance, uh, and love. I mean, ultimately, that binding force of love, which so many near-death experiencers have uh, witnessed firsthand, is what truly brings us together in this one mind. It's kind of a heart consciousness, as my partner Karen keeps reminding me. Uh, but this beautiful sense of the binding force of love is is what is that mind? It's, it does no good to talk about it from a purely intellectual cognitive viewpoint, because it's all about that deep emotional connection we share. So what you describe is a personal relationship with God, which, as you say, people have many different names for this um, deity. And so what are what is your feeling now, your relationship to, say, biblical texts? Are, I mean, do you see them as a, a metaphor or a, a way of expressing those experiences for those who haven't had a, a, a near-death experience or... A simplified well, yes, I, way? I would say that's that's the best we, we can offer. I will uh, have a few comments about that to add, though. Uh, one is that I have had a number of people who both read the book, Proof of Heaven, and listened to the audiobook. Now, the words in the audiobook are absolutely identical, without any exceptions at all. And yet people would commonly tell me they got much more out of the audiobook. So in other words, the communication goes beyond just the words. Uh, and the, the voice conveys so much of this kind of deep, authentic heart truth. And that's where I think people are, are, are gaining benefit. Now, also, I would point out that when I tell my story, for example, in an audience that has a lot of near-death experiencers in it, and I first realized this in 2011 when I spoke to the International Association of Near-Death Studies, uh, in a room that had more than 300 other indie ears in it. And in many ways, that resonance, people can, can kind of hear these stories, and in many ways, it awakens in them a profound, deep memory. 
Uh, and it turns out that's not just true for people who uh, officially remember a near-death experience. I think many people who have contacted us uh, have in fact noted that reading the book reminded them of something very deep in their own mind, of a, a certain resonance, of a commonality of experience, even if they couldn't put it into words. So I think that when people hear these kind of stories, it can awaken a very deep memory, something that they might not normally be able to access, uh, but that helps them uh, to come uh, you know, to a big part of their unconscious uh, which is a part that also assimilates, uh, you know, past life memories and past life experiences and all that kind of thing, all from the world of transpersonal psychology. So in many ways, uh, just kind of reading these stories, thinking about them, dreaming about them, uh, discussing them, uh, watching, uh, you know, videos of people recounting their NDEs can have a very profound effect at, at awakening memories in people that they didn't even really know were there. Uh, that might involve uh, this life, maybe a, an NDE in early childhood that they, uh, uh, for various reasons, not remembered or what have you. There are many different ways that this kind of resonance of information sharing can go beyond the words themselves. It's interesting that you said people got more out of the audiobook uh, because it's all communication, but there is something about the tone and the human voice, or we don't, we can just transmit this oneness. So you spoke a little bit about the commonalities of the experiences that people have had all over the world um, when they've um, you know, had near-death experiences. How have they varied? You know, how have you noticed, because you've, you've spoken to a number of people who've had these experiences. Well, I would say, you know, the classic Western description of going through a tunnel is not necessarily something that's uh, repeated universally, although, you know, passage from kind of darkness into light uh, is a very common theme. Uh, one of the most common themes uh, that goes across all millennia, all cultures, all belief systems uh, is encountering souls of departed loved ones. In fact, I've come to realize that, uh, for example, when someone has a, a terminal lucidity or a paradoxical lucidity event towards the end, end of their life, where you know, someone who's been getting very demented from a, like Alzheimer's or some other disease uh, afflicting their brain, often right before they die, they wake up, they come back to life in ways that completely defy materialist uh, understandings of brain creating consciousness. And they often have a, kind of a rich awareness. In fact, my mother had a similar event. She only had four days of unresponsiveness at the end of her life at age 99 back in April of 2019. But in those four days of being unresponsive, at 2.30 in the morning, uh, two nights before she passed, she woke up and she saw her own mother. And she said, call my children. She got her nurse up, call my children, my mother's here. And I know that what she was seeing was absolutely real, was her mother's soul coming back to her. I know that from my own experience and from thousands of other experiences I've heard. That ability to see departed loved ones is one of the, the greatest indicators of the deep truth and authenticity of the experience itself. And I think uh, this is where we need to kind of awaken to, you know, the reality of, the, of these experiences. Uh, there are many other facets. I mean, that, that's the one that's uh, so common among them all. You can find other things that might be a little uh, different uh, in different cultures. Uh, but by and large, to me, the astonishing thing is the overlap, is the commonality. 
And of course, some people, uh, the materialist deniers, say, well, how come they're not all describing exactly the same world? If it's a true, truly a real realm, why aren't they describing the same thing? Well, you know, we've got 8 billion people on this planet right now. If you asked each one of them right this instant what their life was like and what was going on, it would be so radically different from person to person to person to person. You know, that would look like a very different set of realms. And yet we know that's just the earthly material realm. So when you study these uh, cases en masse, you start to realize these, these kind of profound overlaps and the consistency of the stories uh, that uh, in many ways suggest a very deep and uh, refreshing reality. It's one, you know, the vast majority of near-death experiences, uh, probably 90 to 95% of them are very pleasant, uh, very loving, very comforting. And of course, you might have a life review that's a little tough if you were busy handing out pain and suffering to others, uh, then in the life review, you have to feel that on the receiving end. Uh, so some people might not like that so much, but the overall experience, especially in that beautiful light of love that's the ambience of these kind of experiences, it's very reassuring. And, and so we should have no fear of death itself. The brain is a filter. It analyzes, and synthesizes our experiences and our emotions to make sense of the world that we live in. Dr. Eben Alexander's near-death experience made him face the undisputable truth that life and our existence is about more than our brain. Life is about love, kindness, mercy and respect and we tend to forget that. But where science and spirituality meet there is room for individuals to grow and to discover the immensity of the action that we, as people, as collectives, can undertake. It gives us hope, the will and the power to act. When the heart, the body, the mind and the soul are aligned, we are unstoppable. Dr. Eben Alexander's books are a call to reconnect with the unifying forces of love and to understand life as an experience that goes beyond science, beyond rationality, beyond physicality, and that its beauty lies in the connection with others, in the oneness of our existence as one mind. It is through this lens that healing can occur. It is when we understand that healing is about more than just molecules in our brain and that it is about feeling the power of love, of nature and of these binding forces that we will recover. If there is one conclusion that I shall hold close to my heart, it is the parallel between our recovery and the world's recovery. And so let us begin today and let's take a moment to focus on the here and now and take care of ourselves, others, and our planet. Is there an aspect of God and spirituality that you wish we could deconstruct? Well, I think certainly uh, to look at God as judgmental is, is the incorrect notion. Near-death experiences uh, pretty much universally bring back that that God is an infinitely loving uh, a force of pure 
uh, comfort of being home. And, uh, you know, as I said, I see that God force is the very core of our conscious awareness. And it's something I've gotten close to in meditation, although I've never in meditation completely duplicated that full bore ultra reality that I experienced in my near death experience and that so many other people have uh, more than half of indie ears talk about that ultra reality being a, a major component. And of course, it's been documented in scientific studies because of the resilience of these memories. I mean, 50 years later, people report exactly the same thing. The memories don't change, unlike memories of hallucinations or dreams or things like that. But I would say it's really that, that God force is deeply personal at the very core of our being, of our awareness of being. And yet it is something that can be so healing as we adopt it more fully into our lives and come to realize the power of healing, of comfort and kindness and mercy that we can share with our fellow beings to simply reflect that binding force of love that is ultimately due to that God force. And of course, that's something that's been pretty much universally described by prophets and mystics going back thousands of years, that uh, infinitely loving force. But I think uh, where our religious uh, systems, wherever they brought in a notion of a very judgmental kind of paternal punishing God, those have been very erroneous. And I would say our very ideas of hell or of a punishing God, from my point of view, probably originated in hellish um, or in life reviews where people, you know, didn't like receiving what they've been handing out for most of their life. Uh, and it was very discomforting to them, and especially in the light and uh, love of that, um, of where those things occur in these NDEs and spiritually transformative experiences, you know, it can feel very bad if you've been in kind of a bearer of darkness and uh, hurting others uh, very actively in your life. No, that doesn't feel good in the life of you, and that might give you kind of a negative experience, but all of it is to help, of course, correct us more towards uh, the oneness with the divine, so that slowly over time, all of humanity moves more towards this beautiful, loving uh, kindness and acceptance. And that's what I think is uh, important about the current awakening uh, in the science of consciousness and the oneness that it portrays, uh, is as this viewpoint takes over this world, we'll realize we're all truly in this together. You know, the golden rule is written into the fabric of the universe, treat others as you would like to be treated, is right there in that life review. Uh, because we find the boundaries of self in many ways are uh, a fiction. They're kind of a, a, a stage construct to help us live these lives, to learn and teach these lessons, but we're not necessarily supposed to have perfect ultimate memory of all prior lifetimes and all of the soul's journey to date. And I think there's a reason for this program forgetting that uh, those memories of past lives seem to be covered over for a while uh, in this lifetime. And that has to do with living this life and, and buying into the skin in the game that it gives us uh, to have that buy into this lifetime. And so you've spoken about what the science of consciousness can learn from spiritual experiences. Uh, what uh, conversely might uh, spiritual people or the, the religious learn from science? Well, I think basically what you learn is for one thing that this worldview uh, of the primacy of consciousness, of eternity of soul is something that is supported by objective scientific evaluation. Uh, that's critical. Uh, but then of course, other things have to do with how do we uh, thin this veil? How do we more uh, readily uh, kind of 
become one in connection with uh, this primordial mind and this uh, same sense of, of, of beautiful God force that near-death experiencers are granted, how can we get that? Uh, you know, for those of us who haven't had such an experience. Now, some people uh, will try psychedelic drugs. Uh, that's not my recommendation at all, although I think the psychedelics are important in the current era uh, for two big reasons. One is they prove to us consciousness is not created by the brain, because if you do fMRI and magnetoencephalography, other great scientific ways of looking at function of the brain, you'll find that people under the influence of psilocybin, for example, the brain goes dark. It gets out of the way to allow for these extraordinary experiences. It's not creating them at all. So that's one important point of, of psychedelics. Uh, the other is that they're now being used, for example, psilocybin is being used in one or two doses in a proper therapeutic wow. setting to cure people of nicotine, of alcoholism, of drug addictions, opioids, and to help uh, terminal cancer patients with a with a overwhelming fear of death, psilocybin in a single or in two uh, therapeutic doses, proper therapeutic setting, can lead to um, a cure of those kind of addictions and fears of death over the long term. And I would say, given that you're only using it as a catalyst, you know, once or twice application, and not as an ongoing medication. You're doing the same thing that one can do with meditation. That's just thinning the veil. And by thinning the veil with that uh, entheogen, psilocybin, you know, a time or two, that's enough to allow your higher soul to have this beneficial influence. And that is something that I believe one can readily accomplish through meditation alone. In fact, for those who really want to get deeply into exploring that spiritual space, I would say the, the psychedelics only give you a teeny little peek through a keyhole whereas meditative experience with a dedicated program over time can give you a much fuller, more robust uh, and complete uh, kind of interaction with those formative forces of the universe. So meditation is absolutely what I'd be recommending for a personal exploration. And that is something where the scientific world helps us get to a deeper understanding of, of the utility of it and the best ways to do it. Uh, there is a pilot study out on sacred acoustic tones in the peer-reviewed scientific literature by Dr. Anna Yusum, February 2020, Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. It goes into great detail about how effective binaural beat brainwave entrainment in the form of sacred acoustics can be in treating, uh, for example, anxiety and depressive symptoms. Yeah, we can produce our own a, a natural, uh, non-damaging, non-addictive, non, -addictive, non um, uh, toxic, um, in a way of uh, breaking down those barriers. And I think that anyone who has spoken to children or even observed animals will will know that there is a natural way of being more at one and having a greater sense of wonder and connectivity. Absolutely, I think you're you're. Right on the money with that, and, and the, no question that uh, just our kind of insights to guidance in our lives, our creativity uh, for any and all manner of understanding and activities is greatly enhanced when we realize we don't just need to plot our way, think our way to the solution. You know, that little voice in the head. The voice in the head is the voice of the ego. And in many ways, uh, you know, it leads us down wrong of alleyways and cul-de-sacs and can be very confusing. And this is the first thing I do in meditation is to put that little ego voice into time out because I know there's a much richer uh, kind of primordial mind that I have access to uh, 
through, through deep meditation. And that to me has been a tremendous gift uh, to be able to explore that kind of thing. And that's one of the reasons why we talk about it so much in Living a Mindful Universe is to help people get these deep meditative tools to help improve their lives and their kind of understanding of self and also understanding of the uh, capabilities of their free will far beyond what we normally think of as our kind of sphere of influence. Uh, yes, exactly. You can uh, you can arrive at it, and it it is so helpful because people are afraid. They're afraid of seeming uh, foolish, and, and so many things. And so, when you have this experience, you've you've come back into the world. Um, you you share this message with people. Once we have begun to heal ourselves, uh, we we look back and we see that there's other problems. Today's challenges, whether it's climate change, you know, displacement, um, you know, economic and food insecurity, you know, destruction of our natural resources. Um, you know, how can we also tap into this mindfulness to ask what kind of world are we leaving for future generations and what do we value and what kind of world do we want to live in? Well, this is why I think that uh, kind of the scientific basis for this awakening and understanding is so important to get out there because in many ways, our modern world takes its lead from science and from the scientific community. Uh, and the more scientists have studied consciousness and the brain-mind uh, uh, connection, the more they've come to realize this much kind of broader sense of our, of our awareness and of the mental layer of the universe as an integrative layer of uh, assimilation of information that also allows us to influence that world. So it's not just through the insights that we gain through meditation or centering prayer, but it's really bringing all that back into our lifetime uh, and into the, all the choices we make. And I think, especially when I look back on our world today and I you know, we call ourselves homo sapiens and sapiens means wise. And certainly the advances of uh, science and technology in the 20th and, any, and early 21st century have been very beneficial in many ways. You know, all the advances in medical science, in communications, uh, in transportation. I mean, there are many ways that science and technology have helped us. But then you look at the dark underbelly of what's going on, our addiction to fossil fuels, carbon dioxide and global warming, the uh, melting of Antarctic and Greenland uh, ice packs, uh, expansion of the ocean through temperature increase. It's all a very dramatic uh, demonstration of the problems if you're not really wise. And I would say we're more homo destructus than homo sapiens when I look at what we're doing. And uh, for example, the uh, something like 40% of plant species on Earth are now threatened with extinction due to mankind's, humankind's uh, work on this world. Our technology and our uh, kind of corporate greed and all that kind of thing is very, very damaging. And um, uh, toxic pollution, plastics that are just choking off the oceans and rivers. Uh, there's a gyre twice the size of Texas floating in the Eastern Pacific. I mean, imagine what a dead zone that is for whales and dolphins. They can't even live there because there's no way to come up reliably for air with that kind of thing going on. And it's killing off marine life. Something like 35,000 species of animals are now imminently threatened with extinction. And when you consider this beautiful planet that we were gifted, gifted with, full of life, of, you know, and here we are in just 100 or 200 years, our actions uh, as this one species are threatening to unravel more than hundreds of millions of years worth of evolution for all of these 
uh, richly kind of interwoven systems of life and the web of life. Uh, and it, it's very frightening. So we really need to take action now. It's a true climate emergency. And all the false sense of separation that comes out of materialist thinking, I mean, that's right at the hallmark of reductive materialism, conventional science, is you break everything down into parts and then look at how those parts interact and build them up, as opposed to a top-down causal view of the oneness of the universe, where we can see ourselves as aligned in purpose with the evolution of all of consciousness and understanding. But it's also part of that awakening that we take stewardship of this planet and start doing the right things for the future, for all of our descendants, uh, uh, children and grandchildren, and uh, all the other uh, animal and plant systems. So, I mean, what a gift to have this planet. And yet one species is in the process of dramatically wrecking it uh, quickly, and it will make Homo sapiens go extinct as well. So I, I'm optimistic about the future because I believe this awakening is absolutely happening. That's why I work so hard to help get this world out, get this word out to the world as broadly as possible, because I believe it shows a way forward that can lead to a much more peaceful, harmonious, and a prosperous planet for all of us, and not one that we've actually wrecked through our ignorance. How did your near-death experience change your relationship to non-human beings, and how, did you, how do you feel connected to animals who don't speak the same language? Well, I came back in many ways realizing that animals, they don't have that little voice in their head, the uh, ego voice, the little uh, linguistic voice, you know, and in many ways that's a benefit to them. They live more richly in the now. Uh, they're not having necessarily fears about the past, although a traumatized animal can certainly manifest a PTSD form of behavior. Uh, and, and certainly they don't, they don't dwell on uh, concern about their future in a big way. They're really kind of living in the now. And in so many ways, I think that's an important step for us to do, to be more in the now. And, and animals uh, often can show us the way. I mean, I came back from my journey, you know, before my coma, I kind of hewed to the uh, conventional uh, scientific materialist physicalist view that in fact uh, would kind of deny human consciousness and free will, not to mention kind of denying uh, that animals could have consciousness. And my NDE showed me the exact opposite is the truth, that we, we all share a very rich form of consciousness. The biggest mistake is thinking that somehow this is limited to human beings, because in fact, we do share a very rich kind of conscious awareness that uh, uh, basically all of the observable physical universe, including all sentient beings, is within consciousness, within that one mind. And there are certain ways that that dissociation happens to give us the apparent boundaries between our mental spaces. Uh, and yet uh, the deep reality of conscious awareness uh, throughout uh, this world, and, and certainly through life forms, uh, sentient beings, this is where we see it most obviously, but this, this is where uh, that universe has a way of acting through those sentient beings. Uh, but the interesting thing is, as a sentient being, we're not limited to just what we do between birth and death and this kind of sense of self, but we actually have a range of, uh, of activity, of knowing, and of influence far beyond what we normally think of as just our own mind and body. Yes, it's so amazing. And even they say, and science uh, botanists have discovered that trees communicate, you know, through their fungal networks. Right. And I'm wondering, you were seven days in the coma, right? And yeah. 
And you describe like uh, so much happening. So I'm wondering, what was your sense of time? Like, how did that feel like? How long did that feel like to you? And what is your sense of time now? Like, has it changed your experience? Well, what I and what I often try and describe around my experience concerning time is a big distinction between what we see as time flow in this consensus reality in the material world, which I would say is basically just a stage setting that allows the drama to unfold. But then there's a sense of a much richer deep time from the perspective of that spiritual realm. And that deep time is what allows for souls to uh, basically evolve, for all of consciousness to evolve through all sentient beings contributing to this uh, extraordinary kind of expansion of consciousness. Uh, that you witness from that perspective. Uh, and so I think that's one very important distinction that, that time flow uh, and, and a perfect example of what I'm talking about is the life review. I mean, many people who describe life reviews will talk about the very detailed memory of events in their life. And again, they're often experiencing it from the emotional perspective of others around them not even from their own personal perspective. But the other thing is the detail and the kind of emotional engagement. It's they're, they're really truly living it. It's not just like some vague sepia-tinted memory. And that's just showing us how the universe in many ways, uh, you know, you're not, uh, you're living these events uh, kind of in an unfolding reality that we have yet to understand. And yet there is some way in which the universe has these events for presentation to you in a life review in a very profound way that shows you that you're in many ways still living them. Uh, and, and that, again, kind of puts our focus on the now. And we start to realize that the only way that things can matter and be meaningful in the now is to be registered in the now. And, and it, it kind of echoes a beautiful uh, kind of correlation that was made by John Wheeler, an advanced quantum physicist, head of quantum physics, at, and, and he agreed that based on findings in quantum physics, that you know that the past is not really the past until it registers in the present. And it's an extraordinary statement, but it, it really, in many ways, points to how our experience as sentient beings is really focused in a now that has access not only to the past, but to the future. Uh, but in many ways, once we engineer it all in our understanding in the now, that's the only way that it can truly make a difference in how we live our lives. And that is uh, what I think we're, we're coming to understand. It's uh, certainly in meditation and absolutely in my NDE, I was way outside of any world that was slave to a moment A to moment B to moment C. I mean, in, in those worlds, you're outside of that temporal uh, flow that seems so apparent and concrete to us in this realm. And yet you easily escape that as in many kind of parapsychological phenomena can demonstrate that uh, uh, ability to kind of escape the now. In fact, the American Institute of Physics has hosted three meetings over the last decade on what's known as quantum retrocausality, which is the fact that the future can indeed influence the present. Uh, kind of an extraordinary set of experiments, but it just shows us how little we actually understand about time and nature and the nature of the universe. And we, we must really open our minds to the grand possibilities uh, that uh, come out when we study consciousness itself and all of human experience. So maybe the future could be sort of like a magnet that subtly draws us to it, or I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think we actually create it. I think that's why this is so important, and especially this discussion of free will. You know, materialist scientists who get really 
you know, stuck in materialism will tell you consciousness is an illusion and uh, that the sense of free will is completely false. They think everything is just chemical reactions, electron fluxes uh, from the Big Bang through the end of the universe. It's all predetermined. That's a very dangerous point of view uh, to simply say, oh, well, nobody's responsible for anything. There's Our choices are an illusion. So just forget about it. Whatever happens, happens for no reason whatsoever. That is not the way the universe is constructed from my perspective. And I think given the much broader perspective of of near-death experiences, of, of reincarnation. The scientific evidence for reincarnation is really beyond dispute. Uh, there's no way that that's just some massive conspiracy of, of, of nonsense. This is deeply scientifically investigated truth, and any model we have of humanity and our understanding of the universe must incorporate not only the afterlife, but reincarnation, because of the commonality of all these experiences. And fully dissecting how uh, free will actually works and what influence we might have on our emerging future uh, is something that will emerge from deeper study of consciousness, meditation, prayer, the effects of our, uh, of our free will and all of that kind of thing. But it's not gonna be the bleak and paltry future of materialism that says it's all predetermined. And so why would you even have a justice system or a prison system at all if nobody's responsible for anything they do? But again, our greatest sense of responsibility needs to be in how our governments and corporations handle moving forward with climate change and, and plastic and toxic pollution. All of these things uh, imply a, a much greater necessity for our taking charge of our decisions and choices uh, and stewardship for this world. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, and, and also it is interesting, as you say, about past lives. I do believe at least history does leave a, a trace upon the present and uh, if and, and the inverse, as you say, about the future. So going back to that question of our responsibility, as you reflect on the future, education, climate change, international politics, and how our systems really need to adapt and to work in greater harmony with nature, um, you know, what would you like young people to know? What lessons have been important to you? What would you like them to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I think the important thing to know is uh, any limitations they perceive about their contribution to this awakening are self-generated limitations. In other words, open your mind to the possibilities. You have tremendous power as a sentient being. No soul left behind. This is uh, something Karen and I pushed very hard in a series of webinars we did interviewing. Take care of yourself. Bring that love and kindness and compassion into your dealings with self and others. Uh, and this world will change dramatically. I think you'll find great reason for optimism and for hope in viewing the, the uh, way our, our world can go, but it absolutely involves a change from the status quo, from our current direction. And that is something where the youth of today offer tremendous promise and hope to me, you know, as someone of uh, the boomer generation uh, who looks with embarrassment on what my generation has done to this world in terms of damaging it, in terms of victimizing the world, economic polarization where the top 1% have more wealth than the bottom 40% of the socioeconomic ladder in our, uh, in our country, in the US at least. But really it's up to all of us to take charge. And I have great hope that the youth, uh, in fact, Karen and I dedicated our book, Living in Mindful Universe to our children. 
uh, because we really uh, believe that their generation, you know, the kids born in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and more current era, uh, are really the ones to rescue us because the information is out there. The internet is a great resource for all this. Use some discernment because of course there's also some noise and misleading information on the uh, internet. But this is where prayer and meditation can help one come into deeper alignment with truth and in uh, making decisions about how to live their own life. We have the power, we have the information and we have the will. So we just have to, you know, use the time that we have uh, wisely. And so your message is a strong and important one. Thank you, Dr. Eben Alexander, for sharing your experiences and insights into the mystery and wonder of life, consciousness and the spiritual realm, helping us tap into our creativity. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for sharing your journey and adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Well, thank you, Mia, for having me on. It's been great talking with you and namaste. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Zoe Newton, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Zoe Newton. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.